here. My wife, Leslie, she's right back there. She was saved because of the bus ministry. And Billy White shoes Johnson testimony and joy explosion. That was our cutting-edge Wednesday night service, joy explosion. And John Wills was our youth pastor back then. We worked with Emory. So we've got a long tenure here, and then we've been gone for 20-something years. But I've had some of your kids in our ministry, and so now you're in my ministry. And so is three-quarters of the staff. I've even heard Brother John say, I'm in his ministry. I keep him in my back pocket. It's a good thing. So uh, anyway, I'm just, uh, Brother Chuck and Brother Stewart have talked to me about the possibility of starting a class, and they've just said, hey, you, you know, you have the gift of teaching. God's given it to you. If you want to start a class, they said, why don't you just come speak to, I'm, I'm, we got a class full of seniors, 8, 9, 30, and 11. So uh, they said that, I didn't. But anyway, I don't know how the Lord's going to lead, but when they asked me to teach, they put two stipulations on me. Number one, you got to teach all three hours. Well, what kind of deal is that? Man, I want to blow in, blow up, and blow out like an evangelist. That's what I want to do. And secondly, they said, you can't use a sugar stick. And I said, well, what do you mean a sugar, a sugar stick is a sermon that you know real well? Be in season, be ready. I got one. I got plenty in my back pocket. They said, you got to get in First Samuel where we are. I said, well, listen, it sounds like legalism to me. So here's what I want to tell you. If I start a class, we're going to go under grace. I mean, if you want to stay in here under that law and have to be told what to do, I'd just rather God tell you what to do. No, I'm just kidding, because uh, I know who signs some of the checks around here, so I got that. But anyway, so, so I've had to go back in First Samuel, where the last time I studied First Samuel was when I was in cemetery, I mean seminary. So I've had to get back in the context and the flow, and I did it, because I'm submissive. So we're in First Samuel chapter 9. Uh, verse 15, I believe, is where uh, Brother Chuck left off. So that's where I'm going to be today, and we'll just take it as far as we can go. Uh, I see the clock. I see what time we're supposed to be out, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, I, know, I know both men. It means nothing. So, and if we wear watches and we do this and, and we, like, set them on the, well, I can't get this one. It's a cheap one. But uh, if we do this, that, that doesn't mean anything either. So we're going to look at this incredible passage of Scripture uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15 and following. And so what, uh, what the context is, and uh, you'll, you'll understand this because context is what is before the text and what is after the text, so you don't want to pull verses out of context. You know, sometimes people pull verses out of context. Everywhere a verse, verse, pull a verse here, pull a verse there. And you got to be careful that you get in the flow. So I've been reading through First Samuel, pulled some of my old notes back out from seminary, and uh, I'm going to touch base on some things before this passage and some things after that make sure that we can get in the flow. So that's where we're going to go today. So First Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 and following. So what, basically what we see happening here in this text is you've got a divine appointment and a divine intersection that's going to take place. You're going to see how God's walking his sovereignty through Saul, through Samuel, um, through the servant, and through a donkey. Seriously, that's what's happening in this text. There's a man named Saul who's fixing to be anointed as king, and he's chasing donkeys. That's what he's doing. And so there's just going to be this intersection between Saul and the servant and Samuel, and God's going to intervene. And, you know, they're going to be the instruments, if you will, that are going to be used, but God's sovereignty is going to reign. And God's, I don't know if you know this about sovereignty, but sovereignty is a big theological term that means this. God can do whatever he wants to do. That's what sovereignty means. So you can write that down. God can do whatever he wants to do. Listen, God's so in charge. He, 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 wherever he rules, he super rules. And wherever he super rules, he overrules over that. Even when people think they're in charge, he still overrules that. He's totally in control. He's sovereign. And he's going to work out his sovereign purposes and will in a story where a guy is chasing a donkey. Now listen to me. We've chased donkeys in our life too. 
We have. There are things that we've been so focused on and chasing donkeys, whatever that donkey is, and then God somehow got a hold of our heart and the Holy Spirit came in and changed us and we repented of our sin and where we were chasing donkeys, now we're chasing after God saying, man, we thought donkeys, that was fun. No, this is really thrilling. God's really doing a work. So what God has the ability to do is just adjust and make, make his plan and, re- and his will revealed to us in such a clear way that we know exactly what it is. But Saul, in this passage of Scripture, is uh, there's some things about Saul's natural makeup that he just doesn't have a clue what's going on. In fact, he's a real train wreck. We'll see that today. He's a real train wreck. And Saul's usually portrayed as a hero or a villain. Uh, in this passage of Scripture, I mean, he's got a lot of problems, yet God still is going to choose him to be king. But God's going to speak to Samuel. And so it's an amazing story about how the intersections of life work together. There's a divine collision and a divine encounter. Let me just tell you about one I had this week. Thursday, I was sitting in my office about, I guess about nine o'clock. I got a phone call from the lobby. Sandra, who answers the, the uh, phone, she said, um, there's a man here that needs to see a pastor. Are you available? Well, my thought is she must have called everybody else and they weren't available. <laughs> I mean, you know, Brother Chuck, by the way, he's, he's sick today, but that's what fishing will do for you. <clears throat> <laughs> I hope this is the tape that they get. I don't know which one they tape, but anyway. So I get this phone call, and I'm studying this passage about divine appointments and encounters, and I'm thinking, well, I can either say no and and kind of wiggle my way out of this, and I'm busy, or I can just go down there. So I went down there, and there was a gentleman that said, uh, I saw him sitting, so I just approached him, and I said, may I help you? May I serve you? And and then he kind of was looking down, and I said, uh, can you tell what brought you here? Why are you here? And he said, I was driving by. This is exactly what happened. He said, I was driving by and I saw that cross. And he said, uh, I'm dealing with some stuff in my life. And he said, uh, I just felt like I needed to come in and turn in and talk to somebody. So I'm thinking about this divine intersection that's taking place. And so I began to share with him, just encourage him about, uh, uh, what the cross is and what happened on the cross, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was able to just kind of share the gospel, but in the meantime also just encourage him in his situation. And, and I, don't, I don't know where you sit in the lobby. I'm new, but there's lots of chairs and there's lots of opportunities to sit there. And so I just happened to sit at a position where his seat was facing the tomb and the, and the, and the brick over there in the tomb, the empty tomb. And, and in the middle of our conversation, he said, what? What, what's, that right, what's that right there? And I said, that's, that's an, I just talked to him about the cross. And now he's pointing to the empty tomb. And so I, I thought to myself, you know, we never know in life where the divine collision is going to take place, where God's going to take me or you and put a situation in our path where he's already sovereignly worked out the people to be at that divine encounter if we'll just participate with him and be available as a vessel. And that's what you have in this text. You have Saul, you have the servant, you have the donkey, you have Samuel. This is a divine encounter. And in verse 15, we see this, that um, I think this is where Brother Chuck left off, or at least is where he told me he left off. So this is where we're going today. Now, the Lord had told Samuel in his ear, that's very key, in his ear the day before, Saul came saying, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So you see here that that Samuel had this ability to have a hearing ear. And you know, he didn't always have that ear that was hearing, right? He didn't always recognize the voice of God because according to 1 Samuel chapter 3, there was three or four times that God was calling to Samuel, 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 and he thought it was the voice of Eli. He didn't recognize the voice. So one of the keys in this story, one of the keys in Samuel's life is how do we learn to recognize the voice of God and further, how do we learn to respond to the voice that we recognize? Because see, one of the things that gives me encouragement today is I know that as I've lived my life 
forward and I look at it backwards, I know there were times when God has spoken to me and times in the past that he has spoken to me. And I look back and I realize I didn't hear that voice and respond to it. I didn't, I didn't pay attention to that voice. I just kind of pushed it to the side. And that brings me great comfort today because there are many of us in this room that would probably raise our hands and say, you know, there was a time in my life back here that I I should have responded to the word. I was trying to listen to the voice of God. He spoke, but I didn't recognize and respond to it in a proper way. Now, some of you may be a lot more spiritual than me and others, and and I want to be like you when I grow up. Were you here? (laughs) Never mind. But anyway, so this is the situation that we're talking about here. Samuel had to develop a hearing ear, and it says here that the Lord told Samuel in his ear the day before. Here's what he said. There's going to be a guy coming. He's just going to be chasing after donkeys. This, he's coming. I'm telling you, he's coming. So when you see him, he's going to be the first king of Israel. He's going to be Israel's king. But he doesn't think that. He's just chasing donkeys. But I'm going to tell you something. Samuel, this story is much bigger than donkeys. I am much bigger than chasing after donkeys. I can do what nobody thinks I can do. So you just listen to me. You just listen. learn to listen to my voice and you be a mouthpiece to him so that he can respond to me. So basically that's what we happen, have happening here is that Samuel learned to develop a hearing ear because you remember when, when uh, the Lord was speaking to him before, he said, Eli, Eli, is that you? And then he finally said, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. So we understand that somehow he developed that over time. Now, Eli was like a mentor. Uh, He was under the tutelage of Eli. He would have been serving under the temple under Eli. But he, Eli functioned as a mentor to him, helped him to understand the voice of God. So here in this church, people who function as mentors to you and to me. They are people that God speaks to, but it's not their voice that speaks to us. It's God speaking to them, and then out of their mouth comes the words of God, and then they come into our ear and they get into our heart. So that's the way it's working here. So two common ways that God speaks. Number one, he speaks objectively, objectively, which means outside of ourselves. He speaks through other people oftentimes. Can can you relate to that? Oftentimes in our life, God speaks through people. Let me give you an example. Turn to Exodus chapter 4. I'm going to give you an example of Moses. Moses. Exodus chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. God's going to speak to Moses, and that word that he gives to Moses is going to go through Aaron, and then Aaron's to take that and run with it. So it's God's, God depositing his will into people's lives and then them becoming a spokesperson so that they can deposit into other people's lives. But it's not a word from man to man. It's a word from God to a man, through a man, to that person's heart and life that changes someone. So God speaks objectively. Uh, Here's Moses, verse 14 of chapter 4. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him, here it is, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and with his mouth I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. All right, so God sometimes speaks objectively. Let me summarize that, what Moses just said, and it's what's happening here in 1 Samuel. Basically, he was saying, you tell him what he's supposed to say, but I will tell you what you are supposed to tell him what he is supposed to say. So when he talks, listen, he's talking the words that you gave him, but the words that I gave him are really the words I gave you so that you can give them to him. So see, it's really God's words. And so God is speaking to Samuel, and he's saying, Samuel, be a mouthpiece to Saul. Be a mouthpiece. And when you be a mouthpiece to Saul, you tell Saul exactly what I'm telling you to tell him. Because they're not your words, Samuel. They're my words that I'm going to give to you. So when you give it to him, they're really the words that I gave to you to give to him. Do you follow that? Because if you do, I don't. 
<laughs> okay, so God speaks through people, right? He speaks, uh, uh, he speaks objectively. So we see this throughout Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Uh, when Nathan said to David, you are the man, he was calling David out. God spoke through Nathan to David. God was calling him out in his sin. Uh, God spoke to Jeremiah. Um, God speaks objectively, all right? So that's the first way. So God speaks through people. It's going to happen in this text. Secondly, God speaks subjectively, which means he speaks directly to you. He speaks directly to you. And this is not something that's spooky or strange. Have you ever seen when God speaks to people, they kind of get into like a, I mean, it's like, you know, you know, it just sounds weird. People get mean when God speaks to them. I say, is that really the way God is? Why are you so upset? Why are you so mean? What's wrong with your face? It's not spooky. Listen, when God speaks to you, here's what he does. When he deposits his will in your heart and in your life, when he speaks to us, these are impressions that he gives us. These are thoughts that he wants us to accomplish his will. Now, when the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean that God will give you anything you ask for. You better be careful who you turn on the television and watch. Because there's a lot of name it, claim it, blab it, and grab it people out there. And I'm in Houston, and I won't call their names. It's not my, it's not my class. I'm under the authority of Chuck and Stuart. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, when God says, delight yourself, Lord, I'll give you the desires of your heart, that verse actually means God will place his will inside of us, and he'll put his will inside of us so that we can respond to his will. Because no longer will we desire to desire the things that we desire, because that's oftentimes the tension in God's will. We want things that we want, and we oftentimes get misguided and we go after what we want. But when God puts his desires in us, then he desires for us to desire the desires that he desires for us to desire. And the reason we desire the desires for us to desire is because he put them there. Do you get that? That's important to understand. And so in this position, God is going to miraculously call Saul to be king. And Saul has no... He's a train wreck. I'll show you in this passage. He has no idea what's coming. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, we've covered verse 15 there. It gives you an idea. 16 talks about the anointing. Tomorrow, this time, I'm going to send you a man. And in the text, it says, you will anoint him, my people Israel... These are, these are my people. Saul, Samuel, these are my people. You see, these, these are people that, these are not your people. You, you can't treat them as if they're your people. These are my people. They belong to me. I'm so sovereign. I'm so over you. I'm so in charge. You're going to be underneath me, and you need to recognize that these are my people. These are my sheep. These are not your sheep. You're going to give an account to me of how you handle the sheep. That's important to understand when a king is being anointed. So God is making this clear from the very beginning that because um, only prophets, priests, and kings are anointed. And the anointing here would be the, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, of God giving the divine enablement to carry out what this person can do. So God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. That's important to understand. And so, so in this situation, I mean, when you look at what Saul's doing, he's not qualified to be king. He's chasing donkeys. In fact, he's not a leader at all. He is a follower. The servant's the one that's concerned about the details. Uh, Samuel uh, is, is uh, Saul is the one that's not concerned about the details. The servant's concerned about the details. The servant's wanting to stay in there and hang in there. This is chapter 9 and the first part that Brother Chuck covered. So you've got this situation where Saul's not anywhere close to being a leader. He's a follower. And the servant is leading from behind. So there's nothing in his natural makeup that would qualify him when we think, well, if you're going to choose a leader, we need to choose somebody who's got it all together. Let me tell you something. None of us had it all together when God called us to salvation. We were a big fat mess. And anything short of hell is grace. And he called us. He took us. I love when people say, I got this bumper sticker that says, God found me. Listen, um, 
No, it says, I found God. It's just the opposite. It says, I found God. You didn't find God. You weren't even looking for him. I wasn't looking for him. But when he decided to call me and I decided to participate and respond to that calling, it's by his grace that we are what we are. We do what we do. So now we have a divine enablement to carry out that which he's called us to do. Because he didn't call us because we're such great people. See, Saul was handsome, he was tall, he came from a money background. You'd think, well, that's a guy that should be called. No, he shouldn't. He was not called in his natural makeup. God called him because he had a divine appointment. So we see here that prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to do God's work. So he's called as a king. Right at verse 16, he's looking for donkeys, and all of a sudden, anoint him. (laughs) He's the first king of Israel. Command over my people, my people, my people, Israel. So we'll give an account. God says you'll give an account. By the way, did you know when, uh, when you think about this, you know there's a lot of people that are in authority over us. There's a lot of people that we're under the umbrella of their authority. You say, well, a king or a president, I get that. No, no, let me go further. Everything's been established by God. Policemen, they're in authority over us. Tell them they're a minister of God next time you get stopped. They are. They're ministers of God. Do you know I had a coach? Uh, I, he might be in here. I mean, I'm, he could be grown up, all grown up. I'm all grown up now, but he was mean at Thompson. He was mean. And I didn't look at him as a minister of God, but God put him in authority over my life. And that coach would break me down and break me down and break me down. And I had kind of one of those smart mouths as a teenager. You know how it is. And, uh, and he kept breaking me down, and I kept saying, There's no, but you know what I've learned since I've grown up? I'm all grown up now. God used that man because that man was placed in a position of leadership over my life, and I could either fight it or I could cooperate with what God was doing. And I didn't see it then, but I see it now. So prophets, priests, and kings, they were anointed. There's people that are uh, fighting for our freedom right now. As I'm speaking, there are men and women who are, uh, God has placed an authority over us to protect uh, evil, to restrain evil so that good would flourish. And while I'm speaking to you, there are men and women who are fighting for our freedom because freedom really isn't free. There's a price to be paid. So we got to look at people as ministers of God. God has an umbrella of protection. And right here we see that the king is going to be accountable to God. And this is important. He's letting Saul know, you will be dependent upon me. You didn't come to office because of a vote. You came to office because I appointed you. And you're not going to be independent of me. And you'll give an account for how you handle my children and how you govern. And these are my sheep, not your sheep. And so even though they had asked for a king with wrong motives and God was angry with them, God in his grace said, I'm going to give you a king and I want this king to be a victorious king for you because I want you to be delivered from the hand of the Philistines. You know, I'm the best tennis player in the world, seriously, until you draw the lines. I am. I'm I'm good, man. I can play tennis. Listen to what God's done. He's saying, Saul, I've drawn the lines. You operate within the boundaries of my law. You don't make moral law. I give it to you. You govern it. You don't come up with law. Kings don't come up with law. Governments don't come up with law. They come from the divine one. Do we understand that? And so, so he's saying, Saul, if you play within the boundaries, you're going to be blessed. And we're going to find out that Saul goes outside the bounds next week. But we're going to see how God blesses obedience. He never blesses disobedience. But we see that in the text in verse 16. Now look at verse 17. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. The, the, the one that's chasing donkeys, there he is. Uh, he's got a plan. I got a bigger plan. I rule. I super rule. I overrule. That's what he's saying. There, there, there he, the man I spoke to you about, because you have a listening ear. You have a listening ear now, Samuel. That man, he's standing right before you. And when he saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is. There he is. Isn't that amazing when you see that in the text? There he is. Because there was another man. His name was Simeon. There was a king who was born. He was eight days old. And God says, you will not die until you see the Lord's anointed. And then he said, give me this child. Mine eyes have seen the Lord's anointed. See, you can make that connection with the king there. All right. So he says here in verse uh, 
18, in verse 17, this one shall reign over my people. The word reign is a Hebrew word which means to restrain. So your job is not to be a terror to the people. Your job is to be a terror to the evildoer so that good will flourish in society. But I want you to know, Saul, this all comes from me. Verse 18. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please, look at this. Please tell me, where's the seer's house? Now, the word for seer is prophet. Where's Samuel's house? Saul has no clue what's happening. Everybody knows where Samuel's house is. Samuel is the most famous Israelite. He knows exactly, everybody knows where Samuel lives. Everybody knows that he's been wandering and walking around the town of Ramah. And Saul says, can you tell me where the seer is? Do you see how spiritually disengaged he was? He had no clue. And I go back to my life and I go back to your life. We had no clue what God was going to do. We were so far gone. Some of us, we were doing our own thing, minding our own business, and then boom, God intervened in a powerful way. And so that's what he's saying here. He says, everybody knows who Samuel is. And so basically you have that in verse 19. Because Samuel answered him and said, you're looking at him. I'm the seer. I'm the prophet. Well, that should really be a worrisome thing when we think about Saul being king. He doesn't even know who the prophet is. He has no idea about the man of God. He's been, he's been chasing donkeys, and even the seer, I mean, the, the servant that he's with knows who the prophet is. Everybody knows who he is, and Saul has no clue. It's amazing in the text how that comes out. He said, I'm the seer. Now watch this. Verse 19, go up before me to the high place. For you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. Oh, you think so? (laughs) Do you think he doesn't have a million questions? Basically, Saul was probably one of these anxious guys. He's a follower. He's not a leader. He has no plan. He's wandering from town to town. Now he's sitting, fixing to be sitting at a table because God's fixing to elevate him to be the king. It's an amazing thing. It's a great segue. I think he's saying, Saul, what did you just say? Let's go buy another donkey. You know, because donkeys must be significant in this culture, but there's no donkey hotline. There's no, like, lost and found for donkeys because that's all he's thinking about is donkeys. He's thinking about donkeys, and God's thinking about touching his life and calling him. It's an amazing thing. See, we're so concerned about the donkeys in our life, things that cause us fear, anxiety, insecurity, Uh, doubts, all those things that just envelop us and we get in a position that all we think about are the donkeys of life and God says, hey, pick your head up. I'm bigger than donkeys. I got a plan for you. I want to carry it out through you. That's what's happening here. It's amazing. Now, let me give you four things about Saul and his personality that I think you'll see in this text a little bit before the text. Brother Chuck and Stuart had been able to cover and things we see today. First of all, Saul was a follower. I've made reference, and he was not a leader. He, the servant's leading from behind. Saul's just wandering. He's a follower. He's just following. Saul's not good. You know, he, he's, he's not an influencer. He's a follower. In fact, when the servant said, hey, I think we should in chapter 9 and the earlier verses of 15, before 15, he said, I think we ought to go try to acquire from the man of God. If you've got a lost donkey, I'm going to make a suggestion. I know I'm just a servant, but I've kind of been quiet so much, Saul. But right now, I mean, you're just kind of wandering, and I'm kind of wandering with you. So I think I'll just make a suggestion. We ought to go see the seer. We ought to go see the prophet. Because if you want to find your donkeys, there's a good chance if we go to the man of God, God's going to lead us to the donkeys. And you know what Saul said? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's a good idea. He's not interested in details. He's interested in bailing. This is the guy that God's going to call to be king. In his natural makeup, he's mixed up. He's messed up. He's not fixed up. He's got all the excuses. I mean, I can't do this. I can't do that. Let's just don't do this. Let's just go home. I don't care. You know, he's a follower and he's not a leader. He's only interested in the big kind of stuff. And you'll see that later. It's the servant who gets them from point A to B, not Saul. Saul has no spine, no spiritual backbone, and no confession that he's missing the mark. That's the first characteristic about Saul's personality. Number two, here's the second one. He had a wrong view of who God was. A wrong view of who God was. Because he says, I can't go to the prophet. 
because we don't have any money. Look at 1 Samuel 9. I'm jumping back just a little, verses 7 and 8. So when the servant makes the suggestion, we should go ask God what he wants of this situation. Here's what he said. But look, if we go, verse 7, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring him to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, said, Look, I, hey, I have here at one hand one quarter of a shekel. I'll give you that to the man of God to tell us our way. Here's his wrong view of God. You know what he thought? Because he came from a big family and he was handsome. And his, you know what made his family run? Money. Listen carefully. He tried to pay God off. Think about that. His personality, he said, well, listen, we can't find the donkeys. Donkey's not anywhere. I'm just going to be a follower, not a leader. But I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to just see if we can pay God off. No prophet is ever going to take money to, to, to speak about what God's going to do. So if you look at this guy, you've got a rich guy, and he projects a money mindset onto God because he had a wrong view of God. In fact, this view was so wrong, God's going to so flip the script, he's going to give him a free dinner through the prophet Samuel in a few verses. Not only is God not going to accept his money, he says, I'm going to give you a free dinner. Do you see his wrong view of God? Do you know what? I pastored in the South for a uh, deep South. I know this is kind of South, but yeah. But in the deep South, in the Bible Belt, do you know there's so much legalism and a wrong view of God in the Bible Belt? For those of us that would preach the message of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy, Man, there are some people in the South that will just come at you. Oh, you're one of those guys that preach the grace of God. I sure am because Paul, he preached it hard. And I'll preach it too. Because they think the grace of God is a license to do whatever you want to do. If you, if you get the grace of God in your life, you'll just live any way you want. Can I t is there anybody in here that when you experience the grace of God, you just wanted to live any way you wanted? No. We wanted to honor God and please God. And, and His grace so changed us. The things that we were chasing after and the donkeys we were going after, they didn't satisfy. The grace of God is not the power to do as you please. It's the power to do as you should. As you should. And so, so Saul's got this wrong idea of God. He has no idea what God's doing. And Samuel's going to give him a free dinner. God's so on this thing and so sovereign he's going to give Samuel he's going to say Samuel feed him for free put him at a table and just a few minutes ago he's wanting to pay him off one time in the south I can say this story now I couldn't really share it when I was pastor but now I'm just down the ladder I'm, it's fine it's no problem I can sleep at night now so and I'm with senior adults I mean I'm with my peeps you know brother Chuck said hey my class is full all three hours of senior adults why don't you get to teach my class and I said I'll be glad to and then I'll steal your sheep. How's that? <laughs> Brother Chuck, he's talking about, hey, we'll, we'll cooperate. we got people coming. Go Listen, I'm coming after every one of you. I ain't cooperating with it. No, I'm just kidding. But in the South, one day I always sat on the front row, but one day I sat on the second row, and we have pews. And in the back of the pews are a uh, offering envelope. So one day as the music was going on, I was really disengaged. I thought we were singing off key, and it really bothered me, so I grabbed an offering envelope. And I looked at the offering envelope, and I thought, I'm going to read it. And it says, give your gift to the Lord today, but before you do, check these boxes. And I went, are you kidding me? What are these boxes? So it had a little box, and it said, did you bring your Bible today? I thought, well, yeah, I'm the pastor. I did, sure. In fact, I'm here today because I'm the pastor. I always ask the Lord, why would, give me one good reason why I should go this Sunday morning. You're the pastor. Okay. So I check off Bible. Watch this. Check off Bible. And then it said, did you uh, witness to somebody? Check that box. Okay. Well, no, I really didn't. But gosh, I don't know who's going to see this because we're going to turn in the offering and the offering's going to be counted by the deacons. And if they don't see that the pastor has witnessed, you know, so you got all this law you're under. So anyway, did you bring your Bible? Uh, uh, you know, uh, did you pray this week? It's got all these check boxes. Now listen, nothing wrong with any of those things I said unless you're living under law. Because law says... You do these things and check them off, and then you present them to God, 
and he makes you okay. Can I tell you something? None of those things make you okay. What makes you okay is trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, bowing before him with a repentant heart, saying, I can't save myself. I am putting all of my faith and trust into you. And watch this. Then when I got the envelope, the envelope took on new meaning. I wasn't checking up a bunch of boxes. I had the law of love that lives in me. So now when I check, did you have a quiet time? I did because I wanted to, not because somebody told me I had to. I gave because I... Not because somebody makes me give, because I want to give, because I understand that God owns everything, and I own nothing, and I'm to be a faithful steward. And then I check about witnessing. Listen, I can't witness to anybody, but the Holy Spirit lives in me, so the Holy Spirit can witness through me. So the greatest witnesser was Jesus, and he lives in me. So now I can check that box because I'm living under love, not under law. I had a wrong view of God. Some in my church had a wrong view of God. Saul had a wrong view of God. God's going to put him at the table with a free dinner. Third, he was spiritually disengaged. Look at verses, oh, my watch, verses, it's 12 o'clock. Yeah, if you finish before I do, raise your hand. He was spiritually disengaged. He has no idea he's in Ramah, 18 and 19. Samuel, who's Samuel? I don't know who Samuel is. Everybody knows who Samuel is. He is spiritually disengaged. Do you know that since I've been back for three or four weeks, I've run into some teenagers that were in my ministry. And it's been amazing. I didn't know they were still alive. I didn't know they'd still be here. And they come up to me and say, I bet you don't know my name. And you know what I said? I'm not a senior adult yet. <laughs> I said, you're so-and-so. You're, and I'd call them back. Now, several of them, I said, no, you're going to have to help me. Um, I know the family. I, could, some, I remember the parents. But there's a particular guy. I'm not going to say his name, but... He was so spiritually disengaged in my ministry. Spiritually, in fact, I was always getting calls. He was disrupting this or doing this or saying this, and I'd always have to be. He was just so disengaged. He'd just sit there. I'd teach the Bible, and he'd go, eh, boring. Oh, gosh. Do you know I've run into him since I've been back? And do you know what? God has changed his heart. You know God can do that? So, hey, you may be spiritually disengaged. You may think, I'm just like Saul. Man, I don't have a clue. I feel like I'm a train wreck. Good. You're a good candidate for God to do something through. Just don't give up. And that, that guy serves every week. It's an amazing thing. That's just, that's just a victory, and only God can get the glory for that. Let me give you the fourth thing about Saul. You see it in verse 21. He was negatively oriented. Negatively oriented. Because here's what he says. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. So he thought, you know, I'm wandering, I'm chasing donkeys, uh, I'm trying to pay God off, I'm even negatively oriented. The glass was always half empty. I can't find the donkeys, uh, I want to go home, and my clan, listen, it's the smallest clan, but let me tell you why Benjamin was the smallest clan, because they had committed one of the most heinous sins against God in the book of Judges. And as a result, their tribe was attacked and brutally attacked and trimmed down and the ranks were thinned down and they shrank to one of the smallest tribes. But you know what? That was five or six generations ago. And you know what Saul saw? He just, that's all he could think about. He was negative. Let me say something. I don't want to be around any negative people, do you? Don't put me around negative people. Listen, somebody said, well, senior adults, they're cranky, not, 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 not people that walk with Jesus, right? They aren't. They're really not cranky. Listen, I've been around senior adults. I've been ministering to my grandmother for a year and a half, and uh, we've developed a close relationship. I've been in nursing homes. I've been preaching in nursing homes and different places, and, and I want to tell you what. I've found that when you get yourself up under the Word of God, God can take a cranky person and turn them into someone who's, who smiles and someone who's got a heart. It's amazing. This Word, when, this, is, this is the written Word, but we have Jesus as the living Word. He lives in us. So when you begin to get in the Word and then the Word gets in, you, you can find out you won't have a negative mindset anymore. Things you thought were negative like Saul, they become positive because God's shedding his light. The lamp of God is shining forth in the word of God. But that's what Saul said. He was negatively oriented. Now, let me tell you the positive side of the, the side of Benjamin, verse 21. He said, I'm a Benjamite, small little tribe. Let me tell you the positive side. The tribe of Benjamin was situated between two major players. Ephraim in the north 
and Judah in the south. Saul can't see it. See, neither one of those tribes would have accepted a king from their tribe, but they would accept a king from the tribe of Benjamite, which was the neighbor to both of them. You see how big God is? You see how sovereign God is? I'm telling you, he was so negatively oriented, he couldn't see what God was doing. I come from the wrong bloodline. I can't catch my donkeys. No one ever helps me. You know, all, I'm going to pay God. Listen, he was insecure. He was inadequate. He had doubts and fears. Yet God still chose him to be king. Man, that's amazing. God's grace, it's just amazing. And he's going to turn into a great leader. You'll see it next week if you come back. If you don't, I understand. I'm letting you know I'm going to be teaching again next week. So uh, if we need to start a class next week, you just tell me what room. We'll be fine. All right. So verse 22. All right. Now Samuel, now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor. And this is important because Saul had the personality that that he probably couldn't relax. He probably couldn't chill. So he said, you need to sit. God's fixing to elevate you. You need to sit down. In the place of honor, among those who were invited, there were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is. What was kept back, it was set apart for you to eat. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel. Let me give you the significance of that. So the priest was the one who would usually eat the hind quarter or the hind leg. And it was a reminder to the priest that your strength comes from God and you need to fellowship with God. In the presence of God, you need to have fellowship. So, so you basically had that situation here where he, as the king, he was going to rule because he was a mediator of God. There needed to be a relationship between prophets, priests, and kings because they must work together in God's overall plan. And so the kings must fellowship with God and God's people. So God makes Saul sit down and fellowship with the prophet Samuel. And there's a reason for that because they've got to work together to, uh, to be able to deal with terror and evil and be able that good would flourish. They've got to work together. So it's kind of like a political relationship, with, if you will. You're going to protect the people. You're going to protect them of God's law. So this is very, very important. And so they work together. So kings start with sacrifice and fellowship with God. Now, no matter if the president, this is not political, if the presidents that we've had are spiritual or not, doesn't matter. There's been one person that every president has sat down with, and his name is Billy Graham. Because we are living a principle in Scripture that government and God is not a separation. It's one and the same. You see, God establishes all things. And we like to say, well, separation of church and state. Well, that's a whole nother message. But I want to tell you what, God reigns and rules. And he said, we've got to work together. And so this is important that we understand that Israel's relationship with priests and kings, there's going to be a relationship here. So, so the prophet says, Samuel says, you need to sit down. You need to share a meal. We need to sacrifice together because we don't really have a message until we get on the same page. Verse 25, 26. Here's what it says. And when, and when they had come down from the high place. See, you don't really have a message until you get to the position of being still. See, we like to run ahead of God. And we like to run with his plan. And, hey, man, God spoke to me and I'm going to run. No, you sit first. You sit down. You sit, you be still, and you let God speak to you. This is important in this text. He says, you sit. Now, when they had come down from the high place and into the city. See, that's very, very important. Once you fellowship with God and you sacrifice with God, you fellowship with his word, you fellowship with one another, then you come down to the city. So government doesn't start in Washington. Government starts with God. You don't start in D.C. You start in Calvary. 
So when you start at Calvary, then you can go down to the people and you can go down into the city and then you have a message. You don't start the message in Washington. You start it at Calvary. God's reigning. He's ruling. He super rules over all. So listen, I'll vote for anybody who believes in a divine law and is willing to protect that divine law and carry it out. That's just me. I, I didn't ask where you are. And that's not a political statement whatsoever. That, that's just simply following the text that you get a message and you come down and you fellowship together, and then you come down to the city then. You don't go to the city first and tell them what you're going to do. You fellowship. You spend some time being still. Verse 27, and I'm coming to the end here. He says this, as they were going down, well, first of all, verse 26, they arose early, spent the night. It was at the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house, saying, get up, must have been sleeping in a little bit. Pretty interesting there. Get up that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. Verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. But you stand right here. Well, he already told him to sit. That all, that all has to do with the position. Sitting and standing is a position of getting your heart right before God. You don't run out and try to attack. You get a message from God because he says that I may announce to you the word of God. So what has happened here is that he needed to listen. Saul needed to listen to a still, small voice. I want to say this to all of us, to me as well. God won't compete with noise. He's not going to shout over the crowd. And if we want to hear a still, small voice, we have to get ourselves in a still place. The still voice comes when we get in a still place. You can't get a still voice if you're not in a still place. And the problem with me and the problem with you is we're always running. we got places to go, people to see, things to do. But we got to learn to tune all that other stuff out, and we got to be standing and sitting and get a word from the Lord before we ever launch out to do anything. That's important. That's important to understand. So that's how he closes it out. He says, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. I'm going to close with this. Um, I'm, I'm a senior adult. Did I just share this story? I'm going, did I just share this story? Or was that last hour? <laughs> did I share with you the story? Okay, back in 95 when I was a student pastor, the Rockets were NBA going to play in the final game of the NBA championship. And I got a call from a church member right here. He said, you want to go with me? I got tickets on the floor. Are you kidding me? Do I want to go with you? You can come get me now. We'll go get a sandwich. We'll go to Papa Do's, and then we'll go to Papa Sit, then we'll go to the game. I'm, come get me now. I'm ready. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Oh, no. This is vacation Bible school. Tonight, we, we have sixth graders. I was a student pastor. God bless the little sixth graders. Lord Jesus. And I'm thinking, oh, this is so positive. I've got a chance. They are going to win tonight. I know they're going to win tonight. I've got an invitation. It's not going to cost. Somebody's paying my meal for free. I don't have to pay him anything. I don't have to pay God anything. This baby is for free. And then all of a sudden it hit me. But, but I've got to deal with sixth graders. Tonight. How can I pull this thing off? And I started thinking negatively. I went, well, what if, what if Brother John comes by and we're over at Thompson. We're, we, we, could, we didn't have it over. We were at Thompson. That's where we had the student ministry over there at Thompson for VBS. And I said, surely nobody will come over there. Brother Chuck won't come over there. Brother John won't come over there. Nobody will come over there. No staff. Nobody's been there all week. We're fine. There's, well, well, there's a chance they could. Man, you could lose your job. I had voices speaking to me. I don't know what they were, but it, it wasn't God. I can tell you that. And, and I started going, oh, man. And I started, think, I started becoming so negative. He gave me a couple of hours to think about it. And he called me back. And he said, I need a decision now. And I'm like, oh, something so positive, something so exciting, I've actually taught myself into staying with sixth graders. And I did. I just stayed out of fear and anxiety and worry. I thought, Brother John, he'll come by. Sure enough, he'll come by and Milt's my assistant. He'll say, Milt, tell, where's Freeman? Where's, well, uh, and Milt would have to lie and put him into situational lying and ethics would be on the table and all this stuff. And I thought to myself, and I told the man, just go without me. The next day, <clears throat> true story. The next day, you know who went to the game? 
I'm still bitter in my heart over this. <laughs> Brother John went to the, and they won. And all I do, I have a, I have a bunch of stinky, snotty nose. I'm not sure they even have a soul, sixth graders. But listen, here's the point. I had talked so negatively to myself and believed all these things that weren't even going to come true. And it was such a positive situation. Saul, he was anxious. He was fearful. He had insecurities. He had doubts. He couldn't get find the donkeys. He, he even told the servant, I'm going to skip out. Man, this is too much for me. I can't handle this thing. In his natural makeup, Saul was a train wreck. He was a mess. He couldn't be a, fo- he couldn't be a leader. He was a follower. His view of God was wrong. He was disengaged spiritually. He was a mess until chapter 10, which is next week. Because you know what happened to him? Bible says he was anointed king, and then later on it says, and the Spirit came upon him. I don't care what, in your natural makeup, it doesn't, if you're anxious or fearful or worrisome, so what? That's your natural makeup. But when you have a supernatural makeup, when you've trusted Christ as your Savior, all things have become new. Everything is old. It's all passed away. Everything's become new. So what you couldn't do before, you can now do. Because I didn't even like to. I used to throw up if I would have to speak to a crowd. Seriously. So Bobby would be in trouble today if this was the old Freeman, if this was the, if this was the natural Freeman. But see, it's not a natural thing. God doesn't do it. He takes what we are naturally and He transforms us and gives us a heart of flesh and He takes that heart of stone and Ezekiel says He gives us a heart of flesh and when we trust Christ as our Savior, believe in His death, burial, and resurrection, we're new people. And so you're going to see next week that Saul becomes a new person with a new heart and in chapter 11, he's leading the army. He's got a plan. He's not a follower and he's a leader. It's amazing what God can do in your life and in my life, by His grace. It's amazing. So if you're fearful, worrisome, so what? That doesn't mean anything because God says, I'm bigger than donkeys. I'm bigger than all that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. I pray for each person that's here. Lord, we've been in worship. We've been in Bible studies. For me, I've taught this three times. And I uh, pray that I could just take the nuggets of truth that you want me to take away. Um, because as I teach, I seek to be taught myself. Because none of us have arrived, we're on a journey. And I pray that you would uh, take this message and you would make application by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that whatever word has gone forth from my mouth today and has gone into the ears of the listeners here, It would not be my words. It would be your words that you deposited in me so that you could deposit it in someone else so that they could know the will of God for their life. Father, change hearts. Save people that need to be saved. Encourage believers that somehow we get off the track and we forget how good we have it because Christ in us is all we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Well... Prayer cards, it's 1230. I mean, it's 1218, and the sign says 1230.